Well, before I was a teenager, I watched a movie I probably shouldn't um, called Brewster's Millions. I don't remember much about it. I know that it, uh, it was starring the foul-mouthed comedian Richard Pryor, so I'm not recommending this movie. But I didn't think about it much until after I was saved. So the, what the movie's about is it's about this destitute baseball player um, who owns nothing but the shirt on his back, and he gets noticed that uh, an eccentric millionaire relative of his has passed away and is leaving his fortune to him. So he, he shows up to the, the, the reading of the will and he finds out that there's, there's a catch. He, he has a choice to make. He can either inherit one million dollars and just walk away with the million or he can earn the right to the rest of the fortune worth 300 million dollars. But this uh, relative of his, this eccentric uncle, he wanted to teach him a lesson so that he wouldn't squander the money when he came into it. So he wanted him to be so sick of spending money that when he inherited the 300 million, he would actually be wise with it. And so th this was the catch. He, if he didn't want the million and he wanted the 300 million, Brewster had the option of taking 30 million dollars and spending all of it in one month. If he was able to spend 30 million dollars in 30 days, he would then inherit 300 million dollars. And there were some conditions. He could not acquire anything that he didn't already own. So he couldn't buy anything with the money. He could only give a certain amount to charity. He had to get good value for the money that he spent. And he was not allowed to tell anyone what he was doing. And so you can see that makes for a good comedy, right? The whole movie is about this guy just trying to blow $30 million in a month without buying anything. So he hires the New York Yankees to come play against his old team, and he throws a lavish party, and he hires various people to do various things, and he's just generous, and he buys other people's stuff, and he buys them gifts, and he pays for meals, and he's just burning all his money, and his friends don't understand why. And they think, you've only got 30 million, you're going to be out of all the money, so they keep trying to cause him to be wiser with his money. In fact, some of them actually invest the money that he gives them secretly, which makes him a prophet, which drives him nuts, because now he has to spend that as well. And so the whole movie is just this guy trying to get rid of all of this money, and everyone thinks he's crazy. The accountant that he hires is desperately trying to, to, to cause him to curb his spending. And of course, you know, spoiler alert, in the last seconds of the 30 days, he manages to spend his last cent and he inherits the 300 million, and then people can find out what he was doing, and of course, then he looks like a genius. Before, he looked like a crazy person. And then everybody understood, wait, he was doing something in order to secure a lot more. Like I said, I didn't think about that movie until after I was saved. And you start reading scripture, and you see that Jesus talks about it being more blessed to give than to receive. And to lay up your treasures in heaven and not on earth. And to invest in the future and to spend money on the gospel ministry. And, and really, when you look at some Christians and how they spend their money, if heaven was not real, and the gospel was not what it claims to be, then these people would look crazy. Because they would be spending money on something that has no earthly reward and only makes sense if there's a future investment that's going to pay out. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning from the book of Philippians. So turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. As we've been going through Philippians, verse by verse, we're getting to the end of the chapter, and the, the few weeks before, when we were looking at the passages before, we looked at ways to receive money rightly, and today we're going to look at ways of giving money rightly. 
So, as I said earlier, if you're a visitor, you've come on one of the very rare Sundays that we talk about money. I had a friend um, who said to me, whenever he preaches on giving, he does the offering at the end of the service, because he always makes way more money after, you know, passing the plate after you've preached on it. So, uh, if you're a visitor, you notice we didn't pass the plate yet, but that's okay. We don't pass the plate, okay? If you're a member, you know how to give. So, this isn't about manipulation. We're just preaching about money because it's what's next, that's what we do here. It's called expository preaching. We just preach through a book of the Bible, verse by verse, and that's what has happened here. And I, I believe it will be a great blessing to us. So just to remind you, the three ways to receive money rightly that we learned from Paul, the blessing of receiving money with joy, not guilt. All, all of what you have is a gift from God, so you don't need to feel guilty about it if you received it rightly and not dishonestly. Um, secondly, receive money with contentment, not greed. You need to learn to be content with what you have. You're all, there's always going to be someone with more than you, and there's always someone with less than you. And you need to learn that whatever God has allotted to you, you need to be content with. And if he gives you more or less, be content with that. So we looked at that. And then thirdly, a way to receive money rightly is independence, not gloating. So we looked at that famous verse that's often, you know, yanked out of context uh, kicking and screaming, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, the context is that I can handle any trial, and specifically in this context, financial trial, through the strength that God gives me. And so whatever you have, whether it's an abundance or a lack, you need to learn to depend on Christ and His strength for the trial of poverty and the trial of riches. And so that's what we looked at over a couple of weeks, and now we're moving to the next part of the passage, and we're looking at the blessing of giving money, and there's four blessings, and Lord willing, we'll cover all of them today. Let me read for you from verse 10. Philippians 4.10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you alone. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more and am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So this morning we're going to look at the four blessings of giving money to God's gospel ministry. And one of those blessings is the inclusion in God's mission. We'll also see the investment in your eternity, the incense of God's worship, and the insurance of your needs. So those are the four blessings that we see in this passage. And the first one is the inclusion in God's mission. So in verse 14, when Paul says, it was kind of you to share my trouble, verse 15, he talks about no church entering into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you. 
In verse 16, he says, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So what Paul is referring to here is a care package that has come to him delivered by the faithful servant Epaphroditus, sometimes called Epaphras in the New Testament. And Epaphras has showed up visiting Paul in his imprisonment, and he has brought him a gift. And this gift includes money. And as he opens this package and sees the gleaming Roman currency, Paul is moved not to joy because of the money that he's got, but to joy because of what this means about the Philippian church. This precious flock of his that, that he planted and nurtured and is in correspondence with, he receives this gift and it shows that they want to be partners with him in his gospel ministry. And so this is about a relationship between two parties, Paul and his flock in Philippi. This is about their relationship with God. And so Paul is overjoyed, and so he puts quill to parchment and writes this letter, the epistle to the Philippians, as a thank you note for the gift. But because he's Paul, of course, it takes him a few chapters to get to the thank you, and a lot of it is this deep theology about the humility of Christ and, and what Christ has done for us and various practical things, and he's concerned about uh, unity in the church and all of that. Now he finally gets to the thank you portion, and because he's Paul, he can't even say thank you without teaching them a lesson. And so he keeps telling them, I'm so thankful for this money, not because I need the money. In fact, I really don't need it. He, I mean, it really comes across a little bit like, I was fine without this. But this is a good thing, because it shows that you understand the investment in eternity and the partnership, the inclusion in God's gospel mission. So that's kind of where we find ourselves here. In his Christian maturity, Paul's joy is coming not from the blessing that he receives, but the, the blessing that the Philippians are going to receive because of their giving. Now, the first blessing of the four in this passage is that you, the giver, get to be included in a partnership with God as he expands his kingdom influence. That's the first blessing, a partnership. Verse 15, he says, uh, you yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, and he means the beginning of his gospel ministry as he went out as a missionary, when I left Macedonia, the area in Greece, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving. So there were churches that partnered maybe in prayer or partnered in their support, uh, moral support, but he said as far as actually giving money, you were the only ones that sent me with something. Then you sent it again when I was in Thessalonica, and now you're sending it again. So this is an ongoing partnership that he's had with the Philippian church. And he's happy that they get credit for this. We'll see there's a financial flavor to what Paul's writing here all the time, that you get credit in your account. Now, I have a friend, he's a movie producer um, in South Africa, and he's, he's produced some movies that did quite well. And he was telling me when he was starting his first film and he was trying to raise capital to do this, he said that he often approaches doctors and dentists and asks them to invest in his film because uh, these are people that, you know, have a, may be creative but don't have a creative outlet, and so you can rope them into your project and they can help you finance it. And... I said, well, what do they get out of it? Do they get a cut of the proceeds? He's like, no, my film's not going to make any money, that's for sure. Um, but what I do is I give them producer credit. So producer credit is when you get your name in the opening credits as a producer. Not the executive producer. You don't actually have a say in anything. But your name is there. You're one of the producers. And in the off chance that the movie actually wins, you know, best picture of the year, 
all of those doctors and dentists can get up and stand on stage as well because they were the producers of the movie. And you see this at the Oscars, don't you? Where like six people that you've never even heard of show up to get an Oscar because, you know, they financed the movie that did well. But what's happening there is in partnering with a person who's doing something that you believe in, you are getting credit for what gets produced. And God is doing that with us too. He's saying, my family business is the expansion of the kingdom. But you get to be part of it, if you want to. And as you contribute to the work of the expansion of the gospel, you get credit for that. Producer credit. I mean, you, don't actually, you didn't actually do anything to save the world, but you get to be part of that mission as you partner with the one who saved the world. Imagine you were one of the early investors in Microsoft or Apple or Google or Facebook. You know, these, these companies that as they started, nobody was sure if they were going to do well or not. Imagine you were one of those early investors that now have received the profits and the credit and the riches and the wealth that comes from believing in that project early on. That's what Paul says is happening with the Philippians. No one else partnered with me, but you did. You believed in what I was doing. You sent out of your poverty, you sent money to me time and time again and now again. So you get to be included in the gospel ministry. And that's why he calls it this partnership. Galatians 6 verse 6 says, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. So... What we learn is that you can be part of the gospel ministry even if you aren't a pastor or a missionary yourself by partnering with those missionaries. So we can't obey the great commission to go into every nation and baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teach them everything Jesus taught us. We can't do that for every country. But we can pool our resources, our church and with other churches, and in our case with the the Southern Baptist Convention and all of those churches, and we can send missionaries all over the world and partner with them and expand the influence of God's kingdom and be part of that mission like an early investor, a contributing partner. And you don't have to be a full-time gospel missionary to be included in that because that's what Galatians 6, 6 means. Let the one who is taught the word, the person sitting in the pew, Share all good things with the one who teaches. And in Galatians 6, the context there is financial again. He, he's making the point that the congregation ought to support the teacher of the word of God. You can't all be pastors. You know, somebody needs to be, but not everybody can. But everybody can be part of whatever's happening. So all the credit of everything that God's doing through Christ Fellowship goes to everybody who's contributing to that worldwide. And it's God's design that those who do the gospel work full-time are supported financially by those who benefit from the spiritual work. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 11 says, Paul says again, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? And in, in 1 Corinthians 9, he's talking about, you know, Peter has a wife. Wives are expensive. <laughs> it's like me and Barnabas, we don't have wives, but does that mean we don't get a paycheck? Just because Peter has a wife, you're supporting him. But, so he's kind of making an argument for people that said, well, you know, Paul's, Paul's just doing this gospel ministry for the money. And he's like saying, no, this is, this is right that the people that are getting the spiritual benefit of the work are the ones contributing to the physical needs of the person that's doing it. 
And Paul calls this, calls this financial participation a partnership. The Greek word there is uh, koinonia, which you know, you've heard before as a word for fellowship. In the ESV, it actually has that as a little footnote. The, the fellowship, it's, it's a, a friendship. Um, there's a relationship there. It's not just a business partnership. In verse 14, he says, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. It's the same word. In this case, koinonia. it's the, the sharing together with my trouble. So he says, you partnered with me in my trouble. How? By sending him finances to, to help him out while he was in his trouble. And you partnered with me in the gospel. How? By sending your finances to be part of what I'm doing with the gospel. So you see how Paul's teaching them, thank you for the gift, not because I really need it, I'm fine either way, but this shows that we're in this together, that you get to be part of this, that you are now included in God's gospel mission to expand the kingdom. And the, this isn't just a once-off you know, token check to clear their conscience. This is ongoing. As we saw, uh, verse 16 says, even in Thessalonica you sent me help for my needs, once and again. So in the beginning of the gospel then in Thessalonica, then again in Thessalonica, and now when he's in Rome writing to, to the Philippians again. So that's four times they've sent him. This is an ongoing partnership. And the language is quite picturesque, isn't it? Verse 15, you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, and that's literally the Greek word for exited, no church entered into partnership with me. When I was exiting, no one entered this with me. So I, I love that image because it keeps reminding me, I can't, I can't read that verse without thinking of William Carey. You know, uh, back in, what was it, 1792, the first Baptist missionary society. They were going to send their first missions. And so William Carey became known as the father of modern missions. The way we do missions today, a bunch of churches putting in money and sending one person out to learn the language and live there and, and plant a church and evangelize people and translate the scriptures, that had never been done before. Baptists came up with that in 1792, and the only thing they were missing is a missionary, because that wasn't a job yet. And so they needed somebody who was willing to give up living in England and go live in Burma. Well, nobody wants to do that. So this cobbler, you know, a shoe fixer guy, he puts up his hand and says, if no one else will do it, I'll do it. And he had a talent for languages. I mean, he could learn languages. He already knew Greek and Hebrew and those types of things. And they said, well, I don't want to leave England. So they sent him. And they all put their money together and they sent him in. This is what he said at that famous meeting at Kettering in 1792 when he said, he said, I will go into the pit if you will hold the rope. There's that partnership. I will exit England and enter Burma into this dark pit of the unknown if you will partner with me, if you will hold that rope through prayer and through financial support and through, through meeting the needs, and that's exactly what they did. And he became the father of modern missions. Now in Matthew 28, 19, Jesus said to the disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What are you doing to obey that command? That's a command in Scripture. Ah, you say, but that was a command to the 12 apostles. Well, well, Yes, but what's the command? Go into all the nations, something 12 people can't do, um, and baptize people. And what else? Teach them what I taught you, including Matthew 28, 
which is to go into all the nations and baptize and teach them what I taught you. And you see, so there's this kind of trickle-down effect from the apostles as they went and turned the world upside down and how the gospel trickled down from um, uh, Judea and Samaria out of Israel to all of Europe and then down into Africa and the Americas. And everybody here who has heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, heard it from somebody, who 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 heard it from Jesus on the mountain telling them to go and tell people. So their obedience to that command is what saved us. And now we're here and we're reaching the people that still haven't heard. And the next generation. And so you've probably heard it on Giving Sunday or Mission Sunday, whatever the pastor always says. There's only three options when you read Matthew 28, right? You, you, you either go or you send or you disobey. I mean, it's kind of cheesy, but it's kind of true, isn't it? That's the only way to obey that command, is either you're the missionary who goes to the ends of the earth, or you partner with that missionary and you send them to go to the end of the earth, or you're in disobedience because you're not doing anything for that command. So I often tell people, if, you've, if you're giving nothing to missions and you're giving nothing to the gospel ministry, start with $1. And this is why. Because $1 moves you from a category of a person who's disobeying to the category of a person who's obeying. That's a step in the right direction. And you might think, oh, I'm embarrassed to put a dollar in. It's okay, we don't take fingerprints or anything. We don't know, it's anonymous. You know, that's between you and the Lord. But at least you're now obeying. At least you're training your heart to think in line with what Scripture says. You need to evangelize the nations or partner with people who do. And the best way to do that is be part of a church where the gospel is preached and proclaimed in all the various ministries. And that the missionaries that we sent out are people that we trust, people that we vetted, people that we, you know, we know their training, we know their lives, we know what they're teaching, we know that they're propagating the same truth that we believe. So that's the first blessing is the inclusion in God's mission. That's the big one. Don't worry, the others will go quicker. The second blessing is investment in your eternity. So inclusion in God's mission and then when you give to missions, you're actually investing your, your own personal eternity. Look at verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, the mandatory gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. And perhaps your version actually uses the word profit there. That's not a bad way to translate the word carpon in this context, that I seek the profit that increases to your account. It's another way to, to translate that. And this is about building credit. Now, some of you will remember four years ago when Kim and I first came to the States, we had been out of the States for 14 years, and so we had, I didn't know this happens, but if you don't use your credit card for 14 years, it just disappears. So we had not put anything on American credit for all that time, so by the time we came back, we didn't exist in the credit system. And that's a problem because we wanted, we didn't know, you know, we didn't know where we wanted to live or anything, so we wanted to just rent, rent a place while well, we decided for six months. And everywhere we went said, well, we'll have to do a credit check on you. And the credit check came back, oh, you don't have any credit. You don't, you don't even exist. I'm like, well, I do exist, okay. But I don't have any credit. But that's a good thing. I'm not in debt. No, that's a bad thing. We, want, we need a credit check. So they, they told us, okay, you have to build credit. So in the meantime, what do we do? Where do we live? I mean, like one place we literally said, we will pay you six months in advance to stay here while we build credit. And they said, we still have to do a credit check on you. I said, that doesn't make sense. I'm not lending any money from you. I'm lending it to you. 
I should be doing a creative take on you. But they wouldn't. There's just no system. You gotta build credit. So, you know, anyway, people helped us and we got this and we had to get a little card, they put a hundred dollars on, and then you spend your hundred dollars and you know, then they give you two hundred dollars. And it took us six months before eventually we were a blip on the radar and, and you have to do all sorts of different things. You gotta buy furniture type stuff and you wanna get this type of loan and that type of loan and this type of credit card and and it's crazy because they're teaching you to get into debt and surely the banks want you to be able to pay your debt, but anyway, I don't know. So we did this, we built credit, and now we're just part of the system, I guess. But what Paul's talking about here is building spiritual credit. Being part of the system of God's influence of the world through your participation. If you're not participating in the economic debt system of America, you don't exist in that system. In the same way, if you're not participating in the spiritual investment of the kingdom, then what are you doing? You're just taking up space. You're not building any credit. And so what he says here is, I'm rejoicing that finally you're building credit for yourself. That this is, this is being, this profit of this gift to me as a missionary is building profit for you on your account. So Paul just thinks completely differently about the world than most of us do, right? It's what Jesus called laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven where rust and moth do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. It's the same thing. Luke 14, verse 13, Jesus said, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Why? Because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So in Luke 14, 13, what Jesus is saying is, when you do something for the kingdom and you don't receive payment in this life, you've built credit. And you will get the payment for that at the resurrection. So Jesus says, I want you to live your life in such a way that you believe in the resurrection. That you're investing in people who aren't going to invest back or repay you just by doing ministry, inviting the types of people that wouldn't be able to invite you back. And don't worry, God's keeping an account. You don't even have to show up with the receipt. You know how at some companies you have to hand in the receipt to get reimbursed? God's taking care of all of that. He's keeping track of it for you. You know, when you give to um, a charitable organization or to a church, each quarter we send out statements because in America they'll give you tax benefit for your giving to, um, to a church, right? So we send you a, a statement, this is what your giving is so that you can give it to your accountant. Well, in South Africa they don't do that. In, in most countries they don't do that. You just give and that's, you don't get a receipt, you don't get a record or anything. There's no, there's no record of your giving because you don't need it for the taxes. But even in that case, God's got a file, and at the resurrection of Judgment Day, that's when all of that comes out. And you might not even remember the investment that you placed in. Because remember where Jesus, he, he talks about what happens as resurrection. And some people say, but when did we clothe you when you were naked? When did we visit you in prison? When, when did we help you? I, I don't, when did we feed you when you were hungry? I don't remember any of that. And Jesus says, ah, but the, that which you've done to the least of these in my name, you've done it to me. 
So these were people, they weren't helping before the credit even. They, weren't, they, they didn't even know. They were, they, oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, I helped that guy when he was hungry. And it was just a couple of bucks, but it was registered in heaven. When you do something in the name of Christ, you're doing it because you believe in Jesus, because you're showing the love of Jesus to people. God takes note of that. I mean, William Carey's choice to leave England and go live in Burma makes absolutely no sense if heaven isn't real. If you've only got one life and you're kind of middle-aged and you've got your little shoe store in England and you've got to decide what to do with the next 20, 30, 40 years of your life, if there's no heaven, what should you choose? Stay with your family, your friends, your church that loves you, your business with your clientele and a little bit of money that you make. You, maybe you have a little birthday cake for your daughter when she turns nine and just enjoy life. Or give up everything and everyone you know and go live in Burma and India. India. And his wife went insane and died. And his work was thwarted and sabotaged and burnt down. And he got sick and all these things went wrong and he just stayed there. And he translated the scriptures and he planted churches and he discipled men. And to this day, there are Christians in Burma that can trace their lineage back to the gospel that William Carey preached to their ancestors. And that makes no sense unless heaven is real, unless his promises are true, unless God is keeping track, unless, unless there's a reward in the afterlife. And your giving to missions gets that credit for you. Maybe we should take an offering. I mean, <laughs> I want to give now, right? I mean, this is amazing. But it doesn't only affect your eternity. It brings us to our third point. There's an inclusion in God's mission, the investment in your own eternity, and the incense of God's worship. Incense. Uh, look at verse 18. I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. So Paul's just writing this to get it on record. Look, I received the full amount from Epaphroditus. He didn't lose any. He didn't steal any. I got the full amount. Um, but he goes on to say that these gifts that you sent are a fragrant offering an acceptable sacrifice, not to me, to God. A fragrant offering. This is referring to um, a passage in Exodus 25 where Moses is stipulating ways people can worship the Lord and contributions and what the money given to the work in the tabernacle was to be used for. I'll just read some of it for you. Exodus 25 verse 1. Yahweh said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution, a financial collection. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. Gold, silver, and bronze. And then he lists some other expensive items like linen and blue-purple, scarlet yarns, etc. And then he says, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense. There's that word, fragrant Incense. So this is a little substance. In fact, when I was in Israel, you smell it in all the stores. You, you get used to it. They, they burn incense in the stores. Here they do it in shops that sell crystals and hippie stickers. But um, in Israel, it's all the stores have incense, you know. And 
it's an interesting smell, and it's a, it's, it's a smell that God likes, apparently, because he has a recipe for it in, in Exodus. And so what Moses was saying, God told Moses, tell the people to give a financial contribution, and part of that tr- contribution can be the ingredients that are needed to make the incense that I find pleasant, that fragrant aroma. So what Paul's doing is he's kind of, he's commandeering that image, and he's saying, that's what this financial gift is that you sent. These Roman coins that you sent me are like the ingredients that make an incense that God can smell and enjoy. This is a fragrant offering. It's a sacrifice. That word's important, too. A sacrifice is when you, you give up something that's yours. So if you've ever given money to a worthy cause, the gospel ministry or the support of a person or missionary or whatever it is, and you thought to yourself this thought, it just pops in your head. It's just like, it's just a reflex. As you're writing the check or whatever, this thought pops in your head. You know, that's the exact amount that I would need to buy this fill in the blank. You know, that thought pops in your head. Oh, imagine what I could afford that I said no to if I wrote this check out to myself. So that's not an abnormal thought. That's a normal thought. You know what's happening when that happens? When you think, oh, I could do so much with this amount. That's what sacrifice feels like. If you write the check and you're like, I'm so glad this amount means nothing to me. Look, we'll still take it. But, um, <laughs> but that's not sacrifice, okay? That's not sacrifice. That's not, it, it, if it doesn't pinch a little, at least, that means you're not giving sacrificially. And, and it's called a sacrifice over and over and over and over. And the reason, the actual sacrifices that they would give of lambs and goats and rams and bulls and all of these precious things, their gold, their, these are things that have value to them that they need. And they're saying, I'm going to take some of what I need and want and I'm going to give it to the Lord's work and never see that again in the hopes that this heaven thing is real and that God's keeping track. And man, if I had that, I'd be able to buy that pair of shoes. I'd be able to go on that vacation. I'd be able to increase this or upgrade that. Or... But I'm not. I'm going to give it to the Lord. That takes faith. That takes faith. Now, you might be sitting and say, okay, can you get practical? I know sometimes people always just come and say, but like, just give me a number. I know it depends, but just, just give me a number to work with. Like, what do people give? Like, do they give a couple hundred? Do they give a couple thousand? I mean, I don't know. Where, where do I fit in? I've literally had somebody once in my ministry come and say, um, I know that you're doing this building project and you need some money. Like, what are people giving? This was a very wealthy person. You know, and whatever number I said was the number that person was going to write. So I said, a very big number, and he wrote the check. Um, <laughs> I wasn't lying. There was one other person that gave that, and we, we built. But anyway, so you might be there saying, just tell me the number. And I'm not going to say to you, oh, it depends, and it's all. I'm going to give you a number. Here it is. Don't worry. You don't have to write it down. It's easy to remember. 296. You want to know what to give? Just remember that number. Easy to remember. 296. Everyone got it? You're like, is that cents or dollars or thousands? No, no, no. It's a verse reference. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. Here's your answer. And if you're ever wondering, how much should I give? Just remember, 296, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. And when you get there, this is what you read. While you're going, I'll tell you this. There was a, a friend of mine who was an, an elder who had been an elder in a church previously. 
And he told me that in their church, the way it worked is when a person wanted to become a member and they filled out the application form, part of it was an interview, just like we do. But the interview was in the person's home. And the deacons would go to the person's home and they would ask to look around. They'd see what cars you drive, what TV you have, what kind of house, what kind of neighborhood. And in that meeting, the deacons would decide what they think you should be giving. And they would give you that number and say, you put in a debit order, which is like a a monthly recurring amount for that amount, and then we'll make you a member. And he said, you know what? It works. I mean, it funds your ministry. It's usually a number bigger than what the people think they should be giving. But it completely misses the point. It completely misses the point of what the scriptures teach about giving. So what is the point? Well, Paul tells us, 296, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6, the point is this. Here's the point of giving. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. That's the amount. Whatever you're giving that's not under compulsion, so not the elders telling you you have to give it, that's not reluctantly where you're like, I hate this part of the month we have to write this bill to the church not like that keep it we don't need it the lord doesn't need it he doesn't want it It doesn't count you're not getting credit for that anyway you might as well just keep it and go and buy your extra latte or whatever it is that you want that for so not under compulsion not reluctantly you decide in your heart i don't decide for you i'm not going to give you a number nobody's going to help you you decide in your heart what am i going to give that i can give cheerfully So it can be sacrificial, but not like, okay, I'm writing this check and now I'm going to be destitute. Oh, please, now we're going to have to look after you. Don't do that. Please, feed your family. That's a responsibility, but give what you can. And friends, I'm not even joking about this. If it's a dollar, it's a dollar. There's people in here today who can only afford a dollar. You know, some of the kids and some of their parents. Um... That's okay. I'm serious. We, we literally don't care. We don't, we don't keep track of that. But give cheerfully. And then maybe next, maybe next week you want to give a bit more. Give a buck fifty. I could still do that cheerfully. I'm not under compulsion. It's not reluctant. I enjoy doing that. I felt like I'm part of the mission. I'm being obedient. I'm going to give three dollars next week. And keep doing that till you get to a mount where you're like... This is now becoming too burdensome. Okay, well then back it off a little. I mean, this is between you and the Lord. That's the point. That's why we don't even pass a plate in this church. We don't need to. The people who love the Lord and want to be part of the ministry, they contribute. And when people have needs, we meet those needs. And we've never been in need in this church, in the history of this church, that hasn't been met by the people. So that's the incense of God's worship. And then just finally, the insurance of your needs. It's just a closing verse, but it's so powerful. The insurance of your needs, verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches. Not out of his riches, according to his riches. You know what insurance is? An insurance company will say, if, you, if something happens, you know, 
nature disaster, rioting, theft, whatever, and your asset that you've insured is taken, we will pay you to help you replace that. So that's what's happening here. God is underwriting his command that if you give cheerfully, sacrificially, for the work of the ministry, and you are left in need, God promises, I'll meet that need. It's like insurance. You can never outgive God because he's giving out according to his riches, which are unlimited. So you can never give that much that you're like, now I'm in need, and God's like, that. sorry, I don't have that much. You know, insurance companies can go bankrupt. I think, I don't know, can they? Sounds like they can. A big enough hurricane hits or whatever. We're going to pay you a portion of this. You know, or they don't cover the full need or whatever, but God can pay for everything. So you're never going to outgive God. Proverbs 3, 9 says, Honor Yahweh with your wealth and the first fruits of your produce, then your barns will be filled with plenty. Psalm 34, 10, Young lions suffer want and hunger, but those that seek Yahweh lack no good thing. Psalm 37, 25, I've been young and now I'm old, yet I've not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. Now, before you think I've turned into a health, wealth, prosperity preacher... I'm not saying the more you give financially, the more you get financially from God. I'm not saying that. The Bible does not promise that. That is not what it means, the more you sow, the more you reap. The more money I give, the more money I receive. It's not what it means. This is what it means. If you give to the point that you actually have a real need, something you didn't anticipate, something that comes up and it's an actual need, God will provide for that need. But you must remember what the Bible defines as a need. We looked at that last week. 1 Timothy 6, food and clothing. With food and clothing, we'll be content. So if you give so much to the church that you now can't afford your private school fees, the church isn't going to pay for your private school fees or your cable bill or your smoking habit or your vacation fund or whatever it is. But if you end up in need and you've been a faithful follower of the Lord and you've been a member of the church and you can't put food on the table, we will put food on the table for you. That's what we, we as a body will come together and we will look after your financial needs. Needs. Not restaurant food and brand clothing. And then the final verse, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Friends, this is why we exist. To give God glory. And you get to be part of that. This isn't about economics. This is about worship. Give God glory. Be a Brewster. Live now in this short time and spend the way you should that shows you know that there's something coming. Something vast. Because of what Jesus Christ did for us. Because he died and made us right with God we don't have to earn our salvation. There's nothing we can pay for our salvation, but we give out of the overflow of our gratitude so we can be part of sharing that with others. And if you want to know how the Lord gets the gospel into hard-to-reach nooks and crannies of the kingdom, like the White House or the Kremlin, come back next week and I'll tell you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for this amazing reminder that we can never outgive you. I want to just personally thank you, Lord, for our church and the way that you've worked in our church in its history to provide for our needs, even during COVID. 
Uh, we thank you for the, the people in our church who are so generous and uh, faithful to give. We praise you for your faithfulness to us as a flock. And we've never been in need, and we know that whatever comes in the future, you will meet our needs. I pray that you would help us to be faithful to the gospel message, that we would proclaim it with power, with integrity, and that people would be changed, and that lives would be changed, and souls would be saved because of our financial contribution and the contribution of our time and effort. We pray all these things because of the sacrifice Christ made on our behalf. Amen.